As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. A little over two weeks ago, The Athletic published an investigation into allegations of sexual coercion against North Carolina Courage head coach Paul Riley. The investigation focused not just on the allegations, but also the people in charge of NWSL and the teams that investigated Riley, but allowed him to continue coaching in the league. Since that story was published, Riley has been fired, the commissioner resigned, and players have been more vocal than ever about the toxic cultures at their clubs and in the NWSL at large. The Athletics' Meg Linehan is here to talk about what happened and what could come next. I'm Alex Abnos, and this is Soccer on Monday, October 18th. Okay, Meg, uh, thank you for joining the show. Uh, Let's just jump right into it. Your article, your investigation into Paul Riley and the allegations of sexual coercion there with the North Carolina Courage, uh, also mentioning, of course, the broader uh, issue of you know, silence among players in the NWSL. That comes out on September 30th. We're now a little over two weeks uh, since that happened. A lot has happened since then. Uh, Can you explain to me as best you can sort of what those first few days after the story came out were like for you? Uh, What were you hearing from the league, coaches, players, uh, all of that? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, the first couple of days were just complete it was just a roller coaster in terms of how much was happening and how quickly. And, um, you know, we got statements from all of the, like the teams and the league the day before the story ran. Right. And knowing, okay, these statements are probably not going to be the final version of what actually ends up happening. Right. So, I mean, I even remember Thursday morning, we published the story at 7am and I woke up at six 30 in the morning, right. Ahead of the story, running, waiting to publish it. And then also there was kind of this two hours of agony waiting for everyone to actually wake up and start reacting. Um, So that was a part of it. And then, you know, it was just kind of waiting for, there was an immediate reaction from the NWSL Players Association very early in that was very, very strong and had a list of demands for the league. And then it was really just waiting the rest of that first day to figure out what is what what is North Carolina Courage going to do? Will Portland do anything? And and what will the response from the league be? And then, you know, within those first 48 hours, Paul Riley was uh, fired by North Carolina Courage. That was on Thursday night. And then by Friday evening, 
we had reported here at The Athletic that both NWCL Commissioner Lisa Baird and General Counsel Lisa Levine were ousted by the league. And then finally, Friday night, late at night, the league announced that they had accepted the resignation of Lisa Baird. So that was kind of the immediate personnel fallout. But it really was just, I think, 48 hours of watching everyone else process the full extent of the story that I had been working on for months. Yeah. Were you surprised at all by by the way people processed it like by, or by any of the fallout? Did any, did any of that take you by surprise in terms of either what actually happened or the speed at which it happened or, or anything like that? I know, you know, Katie Strang, who worked on this story with me, um, <laughs> was kept being like, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. Right. And she does investigations a lot more than I do in terms of the kind of immediate consequences. Right. To her, it felt very quick. And I think to everyone in the NWSL world, like the fans, supporters, even the players, it felt too slow. So it was kind of this interesting balance of everyone that's not in the women's soccer world is going like, oh, this is getting immediate results. Whereas there was such a instant pressure as people started to read that story on Thursday of those statements are not good enough. This reaction is not good enough. And so to see that kind of tension play out was very, very interesting. But I think it really speaks to kind of the high standards within the women's soccer world of what's going to be deemed acceptable behavior slash an acceptable response and what's not. Right. And we should also probably mention at this point that uh, your piece was obviously uh, a big part of this, but it was part of a trend of pieces that were sort of coming out around that time. The Washington Post and Molly Hensley Clancy over there had uh, a big report about sort of what can best be, I guess, summed up as a toxic uh, culture there. Uh, and uh, w- with uh, their former, now former head coach, Richie Burke, uh, there's a whole lot happening, obviously, with that team. There's now a whole lot happening, you know, with with a lot of these teams. Um, so I think probably in terms of the personnel fallout, I think it's interesting that so many major figures sort of that were major figures in your story fell out basically within such a quick time frame. And I kind of want to go through them one by one to sort of get an idea of how these things all went down. So let's start at the maybe the main subject of the story or the with with Paul Riley. Have you learned any more about sort of the process that led to his firing? It you know, it seems like an obvious decision based on what was in your story. Um, yeah. but these are still processes that have to happen. I mean, I was, I was truly surprised actually that they went directly to terminating his contract rather than an independent investigation, which is, I think what would have been the, the easier choice of, of giving themselves some cover. But, you know, we haven't really learned a huge amount. There was a, a statement finally released by owner of the team, Stephen Malik, in terms of how they went through the vetting process for when they actually formally hired Paul Riley, which acknowledged that they were aware of a previous investigation, but they were assured, though we do not know by whom, that he was in good standing, right? So that's really the only insight that we have gotten into some of their internal process, but they have not really shared anything in terms of how they came to that decision to terminate the contract. But even the night before the story, we knew that there was a team meeting within North Carolina, but the the players had been told that night that he was not going to be 
fired, that he was not going to be coaching the next few days. But that was that was what they had promised on Wednesday night. So interesting. A lot changed within about 24 hours for that team. Okay. Um, And then obviously the other big domino to fall was Lisa Barrett. I guess I'll group in for the purposes of this Lisa Barrett and Lisa Levine, uh, Lisa Barrett being the now ex-commissioner of uh, NWSL and Lisa Levine being their general counsel. Uh, what do you know about the sort of the process that led to those two uh, oustings? So this was a NWSL board decision meeting. And there was definitely, I think, you know, when we reported that they had been ousted, it was kind of a matter of waiting to see what final form it would take. But ultimately, the board allowed her to tender a resignation and they accepted it. But it, it has been, I think, this is one of the more interesting kind of nuanced parts of this fallout is that I, I don't think it was ever going to be a situation that ended where Lisa Baird was not gone from the NWSL, especially after Alex Morgan really got involved on right. and, <laughs> that and week. Remind, and me, remind, remind us all what, what Alex Morgan Yeah, so did, Alex exactly. Morgan... You know, part of, I mean, a huge part of the story was not just the stories of Manishim and Sinead Fairley. It was also focusing on how both a 2015 investigation in Portland did not prevent him from being hired by another team, but the two players had gone directly to the league and to Lisa Baird saying, we have evidence, we know there was this investigation, we believe current players may be at risk, you need to talk to us, please open up a new investigation. And both players got emails directly from Lisa Baird in, you know, March and April of 2021 saying, thank you for your bravery. An investigation was completed in 2015. We have this new anti-harassment policy. Thank you. And that was it. And, and you know, after the story published, even though we did have references to these emails, Alex Morgan actually kind of called out a statement that Lisa Baird had made that said that she was shocked by what she had read. And Alex <laughs> retweeted that and was just like, here are the emails that Sinead Fairley sent you and then you sent her. And I've, as soon as that happened, it, there was really no path forward, I think, for Lisa Baird, even also just because we're also in the middle of collective bargaining <laughs> negotiations between the Players Association yeah. and the league. And so Lisa Baird was heavily involved in that and there's going to be a trust issue on both sides from this point forward. So Lisa Levine has been general counsel of the league for, for a number of years, too, but also was at U.S. soccer um, and advising the league at that point when the 2015 investigation happened. So it, it was, I think, just a matter of both of them were choosing the decision to not actually pick up the phone and call these two players who are asking for a new investigation. There is a legal element to the league as you know, to the league's decision as well. Sure. So that is, it, it is just interesting too, because yes, I think to some extent they are kind of ousted as scapegoats, but also there was legitimate reasons, I think for both um, to have to, to move on from the NWSL. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the last and to date only, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, person to to face some sort of professional consequence so far for this is Galvin Wilkinson. He was a 
general manager of the Portland Thorns and the Portland Timbers. He was suspended from his role as general manager of the Thorns, though notably not from his role as general manager of the Timbers, which I think is interesting. Uh, is there any new information outside of uh, any of that? He was suspended pending investigation, which I think is interesting considering that was something maybe you were expecting more for Paul Riley. Um, is there anything else that we know there? The investigation is underway in in Portland right at the moment, but I do think that there is you know, severe consternation from Portland folks that uh, Wilkinson was suspended only from the Thorns and not from the Timbers when the front office is a shared space. Uh, I've seen a lot of people being like, so if someone calls him and says, oh, it's Thorns related, he has to hang up the phone, but he's still able to do his Timbers duty, right? So yeah. we have seen the Portland supporters uh, have un- have started a, a boycott of buying food and merchandise within the stadium. So the pressure is on from within that market for consequences in Portland. But, you know, fundamentally, I think with Portland, what it comes down to, especially in the, the Gavin Wilkinson part, is just they're, all, these clubs are run like businesses, right? Which makes sense. They absolutely, that's that's how <laughs> all of this works, right? Right. But there was a real disconnect in what Gavin Wilkinson's priority is, which is protecting the image of the club versus a player's full humanity. And that's kind of where the difference is. And obviously there are going to be questions about why Portland did not disclose what had happened with Paul Riley. We had no, we had no sense that Paul Riley was put on suspension back in 2015, that we, we kind of guessed that the investigation had played a role in his contract not being renewed, but it was confirmed by Portland before the story ran. And that obviously changes the picture of him allowed to take another job within the NWSL and how that was communicated to the league and and who made all of these decisions. Um, so Baird is out. Lisa Levine is out. Who is it that's running the NWSL right now? So the board of governors is still like fully within power, right? And that's always been kind of the question of in the balance of power, who has more of it between the board of governors, which is one seat for every team including the two new expansion teams that are coming in next year. But then instead of the commissioner right at the moment, the, a global search has begun, but there's essentially an executive committee of three women from the board that are now running the front office duties. So that's Amanda Duffy, who is from the Orlando Pride, Sophie Savage from OL Reign, who is actually based in Lyon, um, and then Angie Long from Kansas City. Uh, do you know any more about why those three specifically were chosen? Again, all of this goes back to board decisions that are sure. not communicated out um, in terms of how they're made. But it is a very interesting mix in terms of Amanda Duffy obviously served as president of the league. Um, the other two are are very new into this world. So it is kind of an interesting mix of you know, I think they, they clearly wanted to prioritize women that uh, were trying to lead the league out of this moment right at the moment. But it is it is definitely one of those kind of, I, I do wonder how they landed on that. One of the things that I was not surprised by is in terms of Angel City or San Diego not having a real presence here. A, not just because they're expansion teams, but there is kind of this culture 
tension within the board, I think, of teams that have been around since the beginning. And then you have these two California expansion teams that are coming in with a lot of money, a different approach, right? I think a little more, I don't want to call it progressive, but like the goals that they're setting, I think are a little bit different. Angel City in particular has not been shy about saying like, some of these rules really need to change, like discovery lists in this league need to go, all sorts of stuff. So I don't think that they would want to necessarily the board as a whole would want to (laughs) give that vote to Angel City to kind of lead at this moment, even though fundamentally maybe that's what the league actually needs. But I can see why they're reluctant to do that. Well, and sort of let's 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 follow that thread and 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 look a little bit forward. We've talked a lot about uh, the things that have changed, the people that have uh, been suspended or fired or whatever. But ultimately, you know, the the story of the NWSL and what happens to it is going to be told in the next, let's say, year, two years. Um, so let's. I, I, I'm curious to know what you sort of think is coming, and I think it might be helpful to break it down into three sort of categories with uh, player conditions ownership and league governance um as far as players you know they they had obviously a huge voice in this so much has changed uh and and uh so much emphasis has been put on player safety uh and even to the point of they moved the the location of the final which was due to be played starting at 9 a.m in portland uh to fit into a 12 uh, noon eastern uh television window now it's in louisville and mm-hmm. at a little bit more reasonable of a time. What other sort of changes do you see going forward on, at the player level? I mean, I even think the move of the championship shows that players are actually being listened to in a way that they were not even being listened to a month ago, right? I yeah. mean, that that championship decision was announced on September 5th, I want to say. And we're now, you know, a month and a few days out from that. And to see that kind of immediate shift and, and how it was even framed of per the player's request, the right. championship has been moved. And I was in uh, a Zoom with Washington Spirit players after some midweek games, and Tegan McGrady said, like, yes, this is a win, and we want to we wanna show that it's a win, but it's also small in terms of what we're actually asking for, right? But I think my question to them was, is this kind of a sign that maybe things are changing, maybe that your voices are being listened to a little bit more? And, and the, the consensus was actually kind of like, yes, we do think that we are being heard, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And what is going to be really interesting from a player point of view is not just if they're able to continue this new power, and we've seen it especially in the Washington sphere of actually demanding an owner divest from the team, but it's just how does this moving forward, are they going to get some sort of presence in a board are you know the the cba negotiation is going to be a huge huge thing this is already kind of the storyline of the season off the field and now the pressure is fully within the players like they they have the upper hand in these negotiations right at the moment to prioritize safety and, and any other sort of you know salaries all of the things that they need in order to feel like they are true professionals so that is going to be absolutely a story that we are going to be fully, fully watching at this point. But now, also with the commissioner gone, who had been the only person showing up to CBA negotiations, it's going to be interesting to see how that changes things too. Yeah, and if uh, if the players have have leverage in those CBA negotiations, the side they have leverage against is, of course, the owners. So, what do you? What sort of changes do you see coming down the pike 
uh, for for that group? For owners, it's it's going to be really interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, we've kind of been dancing around the Washington spirit because that story <laughs> is very hard to sum up in a it's very a lot, quick it's a fashion. Lot, yeah. But it's, it is there's there's a lot of stories on the athletic, and they are very dense. And I recommend them, but they are extremely dense. Um, but that's you know one of the big things is going to be looking at how maybe the board changes also who's sitting on the board. We also have new ownership for both Houston and Orlando that we don't have a great sense of yet in terms of how they're prioritizing NWSL teams as opposed to their new MLS acquisitions. There's obviously this kind of internal politics of Angel City and San Diego coming in, right? Like Jill Ellis is on this board. What is she prioritizing? But then Again, like you, we're still kind of waiting to see what comes out of the CBA negotiation and how the, the owners are going to react to potentially free agency coming in. Like they're going to have to spend more money it, no matter what <laughs> next right. year. And so there's always been this kind of tension of MLS back teams, independent teams, but also just kind of, you know, the Gotham FCs of this league are in a very different situation than Angel City FC, for instance. Sure. And that disparity amongst kind of the priorities of the ownership group, it's it's only going to get stranger and stranger the further this league gets into its existence. Well, you already sort of just touched on this, but my next sort of category is league governance as a whole. You know, NWCL is in, in an interesting position, both because of these sort of different levels of ownership groups, but also the fact that to a certain extent, it's still kind of learning how to administer administer itself as a league. It was run by U.S. Soccer up until uh, a few, you know not that long ago, a few years ago. Um, it, 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 am I like? Do I have that right? Actually, is it, is it was I mean, it 2017 was, or 2018? I, or no, they, it, it, it kept getting extended. So I okay. want to say honestly, I think we found out at the start of 2020 that they 2020. had finally. Okay. Yeah. It, so this is this is still <laughs> yeah, this is still news for for them, right? And so. I think one of the things that we're we're kind of waiting now to play out is we've got at minimum four, if not five, investigations to get through, right? <laughs> just a few, but, yeah. Just a few. But the, the NWSL one, which is being run by Covington, has a specific charge of figuring out like what policies are in place, what needs to be in place, like all of that kind of actual governance stuff. But I think the bigger question that we're all kind of looking at and what you know, Steph Young and I have talked about is like, what is the role of the commissioner even going to be moving forward? Because the the commissioner role has never quite felt like an actual empowered position by any stretch. So there's, there's that part of it. But there's also just, you know, how is the board going to be run in the future? Is that going to be up for grabs? Or are they going to kind of say like, no, status quo is actually going to work for us? And how much reflection are people in power going to be willing to have slash, you know, how could more new potentially radical voices like an angel city force changes to league governance in over the next year or so. And that is a real, it's just kind of a mystery across the board because there's also just not a lot of transparency into a lot of how this stuff actually works within the NWSL. Well, it'll be an interesting story to track. I know you'll be on top of it here at The Athletic. Thank you so much, Meg, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Soccer Every Day. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, and you can get 50% off a year's subscription by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. 
See you tomorrow.